Welcome to The World Below, The War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the adventure, the intrigue, and the magic of a land that lies beneath the celestial battle between gods and demons, a clash that has gone on since time immemorial. I'm your guide, your interlocutor, and your host, Michael Pryor. Episode 3, Eucantha Anarchist, the First Monarch Part 1, The Discovery of the Dead God and the Founding of Anarchist Eucantha Anarchist, buccaneer, adventurer, entrepreneur, leader, military genius, architect nonpare, visionary, exploiter, arch manipulator and the legendary founder of the richest, most powerful realm in the entire world world below the war in the heavens. She's the stuff of a thousand stories, countless ballads, quite a few sculptures and even an opera or two. Can we separate the woman from the legend or is it worth bothering since the legends are so juicy, so wildly romantic that they don't just make the heart beat a little faster? You might need to keep a fan or two handy in case of incipient swooning They don't make them like her anymore, even in the world below the war in the heavens. Or do they? Let's dive in and explore this charismatic, contradictory, most remarkable person. Eucantha Anarchist, The Early Years When researching matters from so long ago, one phrase lingers longest. Lost in the mists of time. And the mists of time are particularly thick and foggy when it comes to Eucantha Anarchist's childhood. It's often stated that she was born in the year 45, but really, this is just a consensus that historians have arrived at, mostly through a few of them insisting on this year until all the others became too tired and worn out to argue. It fits, though, pretty much with the subsequent events of her life, so 45 it is. She was born in one of those middlingly mountainous parts of Jalox, the large rugged island to the south of the continent that breeds independent ways of doing things, especially in the area of warfare. Jalox is a place of many small independent city-states rising and falling regularly, almost as if invading a neighbour's territory was something to do on a weekend if bored. And middlingly mountainous needs to be understood in Jalox terms, because Eucantha Anaqua's birthplace would be seen as dismayingly alpine in any other part of the world below to the extent that cue sports like billiards and snooker have never caught on in that part of the world because of a lack of level space. Many, many stories have arisen about these early days, most of which can be discounted as fanciful imaginings. The legend of Eucanthor Anaquist being the one who tamed and kept the last unicorn in the world below is far-fetched, mostly because there's no evidence of there ever being a first unicorn in the world below. And as for Mittens, her faithful talking cat companion, while the stories of their adventures outwitting various villains are charming, they have little foundation, apart from Eucantha being, un- being an undoubted cat lover. What is certain is that, as a middle child in a larger aristocratic family, Eucantha Anaquist was farmed out to a number of relatives while growing up. 
the length of stay appears to be determined by how patient the relatives were with Eucantha's mischiefs and willful ways. It's certain, however, that wherever she went from her youngest years on, she showed her leadership capabilities in gathering followers who were described as merry pranksters or wanton vandals, depending on what they got up to. And what they got up to almost always originated with Eucantha, as well as being planned, engineered and marshalled by her. Growing up in an uncertain number of landed households, Eucantha Aniquis' education could have been disastrously erratic, but her father, quite happy to have the rambunctious Eucantha well away from an already fractious demean, insisted that whoever hosted her must put her through lessons. Now, tutors at this time were most likely to have been recruited from the temple or the nascent halls of learning that grew into temple-sponsored universities and institutes. But the ones who braved the highlands of Jalox were unlikely to be of the first rank, let us say. A cryptic tale tells of ten-year-old Eucanter thrashing one of these tutors with a white wand branch until his howling echoed up and down the valley. But we have no indication of the reason for her meeting out this punishment. We'll leave that to your imagination. Whatever, she endured lessons because she loved reading, and any household that had a library of any sort was likely to have a more peaceful time with the young Eucantha than those that didn't. It's apparent that young Eucantha divided her time between reading and outdoor pursuits, including mastering various forms of weaponry, to the point that she became a renowned archer and exponent of knife work. Rock climbing wasn't just a pursuit, though. It was a way of life for all those in Jalox, and youngsters took to it as a fish to water. A Jaloxian with no head for heights is a contradiction in terms, but a Jaloxian who was a good swimmer was a rarity, and this leads us to one of the most significant and unchallenged moments in the life of young Eucantha Anaquist. We have this documented in a number of sources. Away from the coast, large bodies of water are rare in Jalox, apart from the multitude of lakes in the southwest of the island. Mountain streams and rivers that raged with snowmelt when they weren't frozen over abounded, though, and every Jaloxian respects them and is challenged by them as obstacles in a landscape that has a surfeit of obstacles already. Thank you very much. A game still played among Jaloxian children is the Stepping Stone Challenge, where competitors line up on the rocky bank of a stream or river, depending on how ambitious they are, and on the count of three engage in a race to ford the river using whatever stones they can scamper to, lift and deposit in the water to assist their crossing. First to the far bank naturally is the winner, and, equally naturally, Eucantha Anaquist prided herself on her supremacy in the Stepping Stone Challenge, and not solely because of speed or strength. Strategy was important in selecting stones for steadiness and balance, then in plonking them in just the right place, as well as reading the current and knowing one's own limits in leaping from stone to stone. The tragedy may have come from Eucantha's pride or her excess of daring, but when she was 14, she challenged her followers to a stepping stone challenge and chose a particularly wide river in full flood. Which river exactly has been forgotten? But she had no lack of volunteers, ending up with six challenges lining up on the bank with her. 
halfway across her best friend, Hanno Fassens, overbalanced, fell and was swept away to drown, despite a desperate Ucantha racing down the bank to try to reach him. Losing a friend in circumstances like that, where one is at least partly responsible, is an undoubted formative incident. But it was perhaps not in the way you might expect. Instead of developing a fear of drowning in similar circumstances, young Eucantha Anaquist continued crossing the most dangerous rivers, but always solo, never again competing with friends or followers or strangers. She also taught herself to swim, much to the consternation of those around her unfamiliar with the skill. She read as much as she could about swimming, then threw herself into duck ponds and mill races. After that, she read some more and repeated the process until she was a competent and admired swimmer. One further follow-up from this incident, that once Eucantha Anaquist had founded the stronghold of Anaquist, and had a place she could call her own, she built a small library, more of a reading room, and it was called Hanno's Room, in honour of the friend she lost. Being a middle child in a family that insisted on patrilineal inheritance, a system that says having testicles is better than having smarts, and that being firstborn guarantees having the right stuff to rule, despite all evidence to the contrary, as soon as she was able... Eucantha Anaquas left the family domain and, with a band of like-minded youth, set out to make her way in the world. Piracy is a loaded term, but perhaps not an inaccurate one to describe the next few years in the life of Eucantha Anaquist. With her loyal friends, she freebooted her way along the coast of Jalox and the largely uninhabited south of the continent, even raiding coastal settlements as far north as Honf. A few years are lost to the record, but in an aside, Velmon mentions, as if it was common knowledge, a journal that Eucantha Anaquist kept in her early 20s, this lost period what I'd give to get my hands on that. Apparently it detailed an expedition to the east to see if the world ocean was truly a world ocean without land. Unhelpful winds after weeks of sailing made returning a near thing and she and her crew suffered much privation. Now, the phenomenon of percipience was even more poorly understood in those far-off days and Jalox had little contact with sources of magic, adepts or theoreticians, anything like that. Yacantha began to experience some of the beginnings of what was to become a formidable percipient talent while raiding, when they'd come across occasional highly valuable scale-based weaponry or sculptures or jewellery. The exact manifestation of her percipience, how she experienced this awareness of magic, is much debated. That missing journal again. Regardless, it's assumed that this talent, awoken whenever it was, led Eucantha to mount a prospecting expedition, a venture that was well established even in those days, where people would head off into the wilderness. Usually, though, venturing that way, people did it alone or with at most a partner or two. The expedition that Eucantha Anaquist mounted is the first instance recorded 
of what's come to be the norm these days, a semi-military operation, well-provisioned, well-equipped, and with a sensible eye on the logistics of supply and resupply. It's tempting to draw a line from Eucanthranaquist's buccaneering days to this overland expedition, but we mustn't forget how revolutionary this expedition was. Freebooting was well-established practice by this time, even if it was so far beyond the pale that it was practically ghostly, a whiter shade. Her followers knew what to expect when pirating, what sort of dangers to anticipate, and a fairly well-observed set of traditions governed the capturing and ransoming of crews and passengers of the ships, unfortunate enough to be taken. Division of booty, too, followed well-set custom. In short, a pirate crew knew what to expect, particularly of their captain. A land-based expedition, though, this was a brand new kettle of the inland version of fish. The account that Anquist had to be on her mettle as a leader, and her crew had to trust her enough to put their faith in her. It's these critical moments in history that make you truly wish to be that legendary fly on the wall. Did Eucantha Anaquist gather all her crew after a successful voyage, buy them all drinks and then get up on the counter and say, I know we've just scored big, but I want us to sell our ship and head out into the unknown because I have a hunch. Whereupon her crew would look at each other and say, "Mm, sounds good to me, or the equivalent. And had she some inkling, had she mounted a solo journey into the wilderness, testing her percipients, getting the feeling that something lay out there, something that was worth braving the perils of the wilderness? We have no answer to these questions, only speculation. But that's never stopped historians proffering theories ranging from the wistfully romantic. Uh, Eucantha Anaquist heard the song of the wilderness and responded to show her love of the land to the hard-headed. Eucantha Anaquist was deeply in debt because of a combination of reckless gambling and overly generous loans she made to desperate families and this expedition was the last throw of the dice. What is unchallenged is that Eucanthronicus did assemble a sizable party, made up mostly of the crew she'd sailed with for some years, but with additional members, many of them young and eager for adventure and with some special skills and talents. She organised passage from Jalox across to the mainland and was deposited with her company near the mouth of the River Gefo. This part of the continent, the world below, was largely unexplored, or at least that was the accepted wisdom at the time. When Eucantha Anaquist and her company landed, it was actually apparent that others had preceded them. A small settlement of two or three families had made their home where the river met the sea, and none of the people were happy at the sight of the newcomers. They'd fled the constant warfare and Jalox in search of a more peaceful life, and the arrival of a heavily armed and well-disciplined company appeared to threaten this. This encounter was the first of many, as Eucantha Anaquist discovered. The southern region turned out to be dotted with settlers who were enjoying living in isolation, often with many, many leagues between them and any hint of neighbours. Eucantha Anaquist was adamant that these settlers would remain undisturbed, that all transactions with them would be open and fair. Food would be paid for, 
and she even paid for the convenience of camping on cleared land. Any hint of pillage or rapine wasn't tolerated. And yes, she did need to make one example, a junior archer who intemperately raided a beehive without permission. He was docked a full quarter of his prize share and offered the chance to return to Jalloc's by himself. Uh, He chose to stay with the troop, totally abashed and totally sheepish. After a few days of organising, Yukantha Anaquist and her party set off following the Geffa River in its roughly northeast path. The Geffa was in full flood at the time, the result of snowmelt from the mountains in the northeast, which leads us to believe that this was the early spring, the most accurate dating we have for the commencement of the Great Expedition. As Yukantha Anaquist never bothered to make a note of the auspicious occasion, and neither did anyone else in the party. Later historians have accepted this early spring date as reliable, even though Velmon insisted that it was high summer when the company set off, most probably because it gave him an excuse to regularly comment on the skimpy clothing that various company members wore. Very interested in bodily description is Velmon, and some of his passages where he describes what is purportedly athleticism or muscular labouring, well, they're notably voyeuristic. The estimates of how long it took before the party came upon the heavenfall vary from a few weeks to a few months. Regardless, Eucantha Anaquist must have been kicking herself when she was finally unable to deny that they were on the wrong side of the Geffo River. We're fortunate that we can pinpoint the location where Eucantha Anaquist declared their awkward situation in the company. Because this spot, about 200 miles north of the river mouth, was where the company had to camp for some time while a way across the mighty Geffo River was found. The trees on the riverbank in this part of the world are the famously large and spreading river red trunks, a feature of this part of the world. A particularly large specimen near the bank became a spot where company members, idling and waiting for their leaders to thrash out a plan, carved their names. This river red trunk survived for hundreds of years after this momentous event, with names carved up and down the trunk on all sides, standing tall through floods, droughts and even the staggeringly fearsome fires that raged through this part of the world in the drier times of the year until it was struck by lightning in the year 881. Some of the timber was salvaged and carved into a decorative screen that graces the royal apartments in the stronghold, and a granite marker was put in place to commemorate the Great Crossing. It's still there today, opposite what is now Beacon, the major river port on the Geffo. The raft crossing of the Geffo was, in the scheme of things, a minor part of the Acantha Anaquist story, but it's significant that she was the first one across the river carrying the rope which would make the crossing easier for all who came after her. A league or so on the western side of the river, Acantha Anaquist stopped where her percipients told her to, in an area of thick vegetation with worn ridges to the northeast and west. These were later ascertained to be the remains of the crater walls thrown up when the body of the dead god settled. 
The fact that they were worn, greatly weathered, and the area heavily wooded, with no sign of the actual heavenfall, indicated that this dead immortal plunged from the heavens ages ago, and it was an act of great faith by her followers that they didn't simply rebel and overthrow her leadership when she pointed at the ground beneath her feet and suggested it was time for some digging. Legends tend to emphasise glorious events and dramatic moments. They tend to gloss over months of work with picks and shovels, for instance. But that's what lay before Eucantha Anaquist and her company. It was back-breaking work, and it was done through the hottest part of the year. While fully two-thirds of the company laboured on uncovering the heavenfall, the rest established a camp which needed to be defensible. Palisades, a simple watchtower, and a ditch were all needed, because all it would have taken would be the hint of a rumour to get to the outside world, and in the history of heavenfalls, there were always plenty of those who didn't go to the bother of uncovering such prizes, but simply waited and wrested them from the discoverers. Remember, they were operating in the wilderness. No laws applied to this boundless inland, and any authority was thousands of leagues away and more than likely to be interested in taking any heavenfall if one bothered to approach them about claim problems. Here's where Escades comes into her own. Initially, she was what you'd call a third-rank officer in Eucantha Aniquis Company, hired as an assistant quartermaster responsible for allocating rations. Proving to be competent, she was given other duties and eventually took on the position of quartermaster when her superior died of a fever, and she even rose to be included in Eucantha Aniquis' informal and fluid group of advisers. Her observations can be taken as reasonably accurate, even if any descriptions of Eucantha Aniquist herself start to sound like hero worship. In this early establishment of the fortified settlement, Escades is at pains to point out how Eucantha Aniquist never shirked any physical labour and was found with a pick in hand or trying to manage one of the notoriously skittish crude wheelbarrows that were essential for removing spoil from what quickly became a large, open, sloping-sided pit. It would have been a perfect moment in a novel if Eucantha Aniquist had have been the first one to uncover a trace of the heavenfall that was calling to her, but it wasn't to be. It was Eliana Wefton who first struck what later proved to be a knuckle on the left-hand side of the dead god, and she has been immortalised as the first to see the heavenly body, a fact freely acknowledged by Eucantha Aniquist at a celebration quickly organised and duly noted by Escades. Eliana Wefton, of course, gave her name to the part of Lowtown, where she eventually built a large mansion with her part of her proceeds, and where her family was prominent for generations. Once there was concrete confirmation that Eucantha Aniquist wasn't just a starry-eyed visionary, work went even faster, concentrating on the area that Eliana Wefton had been working until the entire left hand of the dead god was uncovered. Gradually, the extent of this heavenfall was becoming obvious as the hand was gigantic and the magnificence of the scales covering this colossal find was something unsurpassed, stunning even those with some experience of magical finds. And Eucantha Aniquist had ensured that she had a pair of knowledgeable experts 
in the party. At this point, it was clear that Eucantha Anaquist and her followers had something remarkable. But even then, history had been littered with extraordinary finds that had changed hands numerous times before an indisputable claimant had been able to hang on to them. Call them skirmishes, brawls, disputes or small wars, this was the common pattern for Heavenfalls. Eucantha Anaquist's major achievement was to avoid this and to become the first finder to hold on to a significant heavenfall and thus become a founder. A finder-founder, if you will. Eucantha Anaquist's subsequent history will be the subject of our next podcast. What did she do next? Why is she so revered? And what about her dark side? Because, let's face it, every figure from the distant past surely has a dark side, right? It's time for an aside, an illustrative sidelight that, I hope, will help to bring this legendary figure to life, moving her from what can be the dusty pages of history to something more human. Let's talk about Eucantha Anaquist, the juggler. Look, many stories have arisen about Eucantha Anaquist's life as a pirate. One that has independent verification from a number of sources is that she was a very skilled juggler. Her contemporary and friends noted that Eucantha Anaquist took up the pursuit in her early teens after being impressed by a travelling entertainer who visited the home in Jalox. She gave the young Eucantha a few pointers before leaving and Eucantha immediately threw herself into the pursuit, hoping to become an immediate expert, a desire that was not to be. A long period of frustration, months tending to a year, followed, but instead of giving up, this merely made the young Eucantha more determined to succeed, a characteristic way of approaching life that echoes throughout the story of Eucantha Anaquist. Eventually something clicked, and she went from hesitancy to fluency, three, then four, then five balls at a time, before taking on plates, blades and flower pots. She earned money at times, setting up a place in markets, enough to buy her first sabre. Later, she was always up for a challenge and won many bets from fellow drinkers who doubted her skills. She never lost the ability and practised regularly, if less often as the role of monarch of this new state of anarchist began to take up more of her time. Even while building the keep in the beginnings of the Hypogeum, she could often be seen contemplating arch spans while idly juggling three or four small stones in one hand. Once the claim to the Heavenfall was well established, she often made the point that juggling and heading a nation-state had much in common, and she enjoyed showing off her skills to small children, emissaries from abroad, and other easily amused audiences. Next in the World Below the War in the Heavens podcast, Episode 4, Eucantharanaquist, Queen. This has been The World Below the War in the Heavens, a podcast exploring the history, culture and esoterica of the world below, a continent of magic and mystery with inhabitants who keep one eye on the sky at all times. I've been your host, Michael Pryor. 
If you'd like to find out more about me and my books, pop over to www.michaelpryor.com.au. Farewell. Farewell.